Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Uh, A number of years ago, when I uh, finished seminary, I finished from a campus that had, uh, or from a seminary that had numerous campuses, and uh, a friend of mine that I'd worked with a few years before went to a different campus and graduated, and all of us, we had these graduation dinners uh, the night before, where people go around and they share uh, a little bit about what they learned in seminary, and then they would share uh, what they were doing. Uh, where the Lord had called them. And so people would go around and share, uh, they're going to the mission field or going into counseling or going to work at a church. And they all went around and said those things. And then they got uh, to my friend and he said, "Uh, my wife and I are moving home with my parents and we're going to take some time to work on our marriage. And uh, they went on to the next person at the beginning of seminary, if you told my friend that's what he would be saying at the end of four years of grad school, I don't think he would have been excited. I think if someone was on the outside looking into this dinner, you know, most people would say that's disappointing, maybe at best, uh, maybe a failure at worst. It's not what you anticipate saying at a graduation dinner. In, in the passage we just read, we, we've kind of parachuted into Exodus here. I realize we've been in the Psalms and the book of Acts and the miracles of Jesus. But where we are in the book of Exodus, Moses uh, is almost 80 years old. We're told in Acts 7, when he goes back to Pharaoh, he's 80 years old. He grew up as a Hebrew in Egypt, but was adopted by Pharaoh. So, so grew up kind of as a, uh, as a dual citizen. He was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite, but he grew up in the court of Pharaoh Uh, grew in influence, uh, grew in responsibility uh, until the day that he saw his people, the Hebrews, being oppressed by the Egyptians. And then one day in particular, he saw an Egyptian uh, fighting against one of the Hebrew and he struck the Egyptian dead. And he knew at that moment, as a Hebrew living in an Egyptian culture, he had to flee. And so he did flee. He fled to Midian and he spent 40 years shepherding sheep in Midian. By all outward signs, by the age of 80, if you'd looked at Moses' life when he was 40, Moses' life looked like a life of failure. It looked like a life of disappointment. He's 80 years old. He's a wanted man. Maybe, maybe on his best days he's a wanted man. Uh, he also might just be forgotten. He's been gone 40 years. The people that knew him may not remember him. 
and he's shepherding sheep, which we're told in Exodus 46, the Egyptians viewed that as an abomination. It was the lowest of jobs. So he's gone from the court of Pharaoh to on the run from the law. Now he's shepherding sheep in isolation. And it's at this moment in his life that God meets him. I don't know about you, but I always forget this about Moses' life. I always think, gosh, you know, you know, I always forget that for 40 years he was in isolation and he didn't do anything amazing for God until God met him at his lowest point. And that theme is true throughout scripture and is just as true today. Before you or I do anything for God, God must first meet us. Certainly that's true in in how we come to know God and become a Christian, but that is also the rhythm of the Christian life. It's why we gather Sunday after Sunday to be reminded of who we are and who God is and how we might relate to him. And it's what Moses does right here. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what it looks like to meet God I'm going to look at three things. Meeting God will reveal his glory and our weakness. Uh, meeting God will reveal his faithfulness. And lastly, we'll look at how it cultivates in us a life of dependence. So meeting God reveals his glory and our weakness. If you were a fan of uh, television comedy in the 90s, uh, you're probably have to be somewhat thankful to Conan O'Brien or Mike Myers. Conan O'Brien was a writer for The Simpsons and for SNL. Mike Myers was in a lot of movies and on Saturday Night Live, he was, uh, one of, he was a part of one of the golden ages of Saturday Night Live with uh, Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and Dana Carvey. And um, I recently heard an interview between them two and, and Conan O'Brien said uh, to Mike Myers, he said, gosh, I bet people just come up to you all the time and say, you must have had the funnest job. I mean, you worked with some of the funnest comedians. Every week must have been a blast going to work. And Mike Myers, in a really candid moment, said, that's one of my biggest regrets. He said, I wish I actually could have enjoyed my time there. But he said, I always felt inadequate. He said, I never thought I would get the job. And when I got the job, I thought I was going to lose the job or not be included in a skit each week. I wasn't sure if I was going to end up on stage or if I'd get fired. I really felt unworthy and inadequate all the time because I was surrounded by so many other great people. Moses is at his lowest point in his 80 years of life. And God comes to meet him. I've never, you know, I've never seen God like Moses has seen God, but I've certainly been intrigued by it. Maybe you have been intrigued by the idea of seeing God, of meeting God. And yet, when it happens in Scripture, over and over, the reaction is actually very similar to Moses' reaction. What's Moses' reaction in verse 6? He hides because he's afraid of God. He comes into contact with God's holiness. This angel of the Lord appears to him from the bush, says, you're standing on holy ground. The first thing Moses is confronted with when he meets God is that God is holy. 
God is not like him. God is not a God to be trifled with. Even how he appears to Moses here is somewhat confusing and incomprehensible. I mean, God appears as smoke and fire throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus. Maybe you've even heard of God being an an all-consuming fire. Well, here he appears as fire, but he's not consuming the bush. And he speaks to Moses from a bush. And Moses is immediately confronted with the fact that this God is different. He's holy. He's frightened. He's likely also confused. It's similar to the reactions given throughout the Bible. In Job 42, when God speaks to Moses, when God speaks to Job, Job responds to him and he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Even Peter in the boat with Jesus, they, they go out, they've, they've been fishing all night. Jesus appears to them. They haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, drop, you know, drop the net in off the boat and just see what happens. And they're all like, well, we're fishermen, but whatever. And so they do it and they pull up and the net is full of fish. And even something as small as that triggers in Peter the realization, I am a sinful man. He says this in Luke 5. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You will know you've met the real God when you become aware of your own weakness, when you become aware of your own sinfulness, when you become aware of the fact that God is a God that we do not create in our image. He's a God who is not to be trifled with. This is why Moses hides This is why John, when he's writing Revelation, he writes of heaven, he he talks about how he almost falls dead. This is who God is. And yet, this God, to even add to his incomprehensibility, this God is also the God who longs to be with his people, who are not like him, who are sinful, who are weak, who are slow to trust, who are not mighty, who are not powerful. This almighty God desires to be with his people. That's why he comes to Moses and he says, I'm the God of your father and I'm the God of Abraham and I'm the God of Isaac and I'm the God of Jacob and now I want to use you. And and, and you think about that, like up until this point in the narrative, it's like, gosh, that's all, what an amazing picture. Almighty God, holy, powerful comes to Moses when he's at the lowest of lows and he says, I'm going to use you. And Moses is great. We don't really hear Moses talk in this narrative until that point. When you go down into verse 10 and God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to use you to redeem my people from Israel. Then all of a sudden Moses starts to speak and Moses has a problem. Me? You want to use me? Verse 10, he says this. He says, 
Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to Pharaoh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? From this point on through 4, chapter, verse 17, it is really just a back and forth between God telling Moses what he's going to do and Moses telling God all the reasons he should not do the things that he wants to do. God says, I'm going to use you. And then Moses has this full list of reasons why God should use someone else or do something differently. And so what seems like a beautiful season scene to us kind of triggers panic and despair in Moses. Moses is a towering figure in the Old Testament, uh, but he is one of the more reluctant people in all the Bible to trust God. I mean, listen to all his responses. What we just read, 3 verse 11, who am I, Lord, that you should send me? And two, two verses later, verse 13, what should I tell them? Chapter 4 verse 1, what if they don't believe me? That's actually a reasonable excuse. He's been gone for 40 years. What if they don't believe what I say? What if they don't remember me? 4 verses 10, I've never been eloquent. And then 4 verses 13, please send someone else. God is right in front of Moses and all Moses can see is his weakness. All he can see is his inadequacy. And how does God respond? It's amazing. God doesn't respond to him like, shucks, Moses, you're just, you're being too hard on yourself. You're really not that weak. No, every time Moses responds, God responds back to him. Verse 11, when he says, who am I that I should bring the children out? Verse 12, I will be with you. Verse 13, who, what should I say when they ask me? Tell them I am sent you. He's giving Moses his name, but he's giving him much more than his name. He's telling him what he's like. I am the God who exists, the God who has always existed, the God who will always exist. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God who keeps his promises, that God is with you and that God has sent you. Tell them, I am sent you. Moses feels insufficient. God is reminding him that God is sufficient. Moses feels weak. God is reminding him he is powerful. He is and he will always be. 4 verse 10, Moses says, I'm not eloquent. And God says, Moses, do you remember who made your mouth? I am is sending you. I'm the one who created you. This morning, I think all of us in one way or another can resonate with Moses. For some of you, you may feel the isolation, the disappointment that Moses feels. Maybe by outward appearances or by inward appearances, your life is not going the way you want it to go. You feel like you should be further along right now in your career. Uh, You feel like your family should have moved on beyond the thing they've been dealing with. You feel like you should have moved on beyond those sins that you struggled with 10 years ago and you're still struggling with today. You feel like you should be more respected. You You feel like you should have a greater voice. And maybe you feel that you are a lost cause. Maybe you believe God likes you, although many of us struggle to believe that. 
Maybe you believe the cross is true. On your best days, you believe that it's true for you. But do you believe that God could ever use someone like you, that he would actually like to use someone like you? We have our own list of excuses. Maybe they're similar to, to, to Moses'. I'm not eloquent. I'm not, I'm not a people person. Uh, maybe you feel like God's put certain situations or people in your life, but you feel like if you were to enter into that, it would expose you in so many ways. You don't want to fail. You don't want to fail in front of people. You don't want to be in a situation where you may not have an answer. So we feel weak and despairing, and we need to hear exactly what Moses needed to hear. What does God say to him over and over in this passage? And what does God say to the people of Israel over and over throughout the Bible? I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God has a hit. We're only in the second chapter, second book of the Bible, but God has a track record for working through people. And we hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're like me, you remember the highlights of their life. But if you read Genesis 12 through 36, page after page, it is not a chronicle of their successes. It's a chronicle of their failures. And in spite of their failures, God using them and being faithful to them over and over, Moses is reluctant to trust God. Abraham might have even been more reluctant and more obstinate. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And wait, they have to go through Egypt where he's afraid his wife might get taken from them if they know he's his wife. So he says, no, 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 just pretend you're my sister. Then they can go and then they can take you and sleep with you. And they still don't have a child. So he says, you know what? God said you provide a child, but this is not working out on my timetable. I'll sleep with my wife's maidservant, then we'll have a child. Isaac, his son, almost unravels his family through showing favoritism. Jacob, his son, is known as a thief and a con artist. And God is coming to Moses and he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And so it should come as no surprise that God shows up to someone like Moses and says, I'm your God and I want to use you. And it should come as no surprise to us that God will actually come to you, not at our most impressive, maybe not when we want him to, but he comes to us in order that we might be used for his glory. When we are weak, then we are strong. That's why Paul can say that. Paul can say that in 2 Corinthians 12 because when we are at our weakest, we are actually at our strongest. Why? Why? Because it's at that moment that we realize in and of ourselves, we may appear strong, we may be able to project strength, but we do not have the power inside us to transform us, to change ourselves. Therefore, when we are weak, then we are strong. God meets Moses in his insecurity. He meets him in his weakness. And what's amazing is, it's amazing how God responds to him at each moment in this passage. And it's sometimes it might appear like God's just, just waiting for Moses to talk and then to jump back with a response almost impatiently. And it does say that God 
you know, he tests God's patience for sure. But over and over, God gives them just response after response. I'm going to be with you. I am sent you. Take that rod. It's going to turn into a snake. Put your hand in your cloak. Take it out. It has leprosy. Put it back in. It does. He's showing him again and again. I'm faithful. And Moses still doesn't trust him. And you'd think at this point, you know, if we were planning this, we'd be like, golly, we have picked the wrong person. Let's move on from here. And yet, God doesn't just respond to him and say, you need to get it or understand it. Isn't it amazing? Look at 4 verses 14. In spite of all of Moses' protests and all of God's correct responses that should have convinced him, that should convince us, Moses doesn't believe, and yet, what does God do in verse 14? He says, you know what? Your brother Aaron's here, and he loves you. And I'm going to use him, and I'm going to use you to speak to Pharaoh. He's going to be your mouthpiece. You're going to be as God to him, and I'm going to use both of you to set my people free. When Moses was at his weakest, when he was at his most hopeless, is when God plucked him and used him to do amazing things for him. That is the posture of the Christian life. At that graduation dinner at the end, uh, when they wrapped up, the dean of students walked over to my friend uh, and he said, I've never been more proud of a graduate of this seminary. I had friends that were there, went to seminary all the way through, and they said that was easily the best moment of the night, and maybe even their whole four years of seminary. Because what they had in front of them was a picture, a true picture, of what the Christian life looks like. We don't like that, we, don't, we, we often resist the whole creator-creature distinction. We don't love being dependent, but it's the truth. It's what we are. That's how we've been created to live, is to live as children dependent upon a, our Father. But as we confess together, we are so quick to resist being fathered. We're so quick to resist God's fatherly care And yet it is when we are at our weakest that we sense his presence the most. This is true not just in this episode. It's not just true in how God meets people. That that theme is true in how God accomplishes salvation. You, You think about it. God is so holy and he's so righteous and so intolerant of sin that he sent his son Jesus to be punished for our sin. He sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and to be punished that we might have freedom. But how does he send Jesus? When when Jesus takes on flesh, how does he appear? In power and in glory? No. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was rejected by his own family. All the people that had power and influence rejected Jesus. His disciples were not impressive. He took on a vocation. What does he call himself? I am the good shepherd. An occupation that was looked down upon in Jesus' time just as much as it was in Moses' time. And then he dies the death of a criminal. Jesus comes in weakness to save a people who are weak. 
and he raises from the dead and now inhabits those who need him. This is how God works. By worldly standards, if you looked at Jesus' life at, at, at age 33 on earth, I'm sure no one in the Roman Empire was thinking, wow, gosh, that guy's he's really accomplished a lot. He um, has this band of you know, ragtag followers, and he hasn't really traveled beyond 30 miles of his town, and he's being sentenced to death like a criminal. No one looked at that life. By outward standards, it was a failure. And yet it was at that moment that God was accomplishing salvation for his people and giving hope to the hopeless and a light to the nations. God will work in the midst of darkness to bring out light. That's the pattern. And, and, and so, so here's my encouragement to me and to you. We are so quick to resist our humanity. This scene in Moses' life, that scene at the graduation dinner is so often our worst nightmare. We hate admitting weakness, at least to other people. Maybe we feel okay doing it in prayer, but I'll tell you what, we're all needy people. That's a phrase we don't like. Our culture, to be needy is is to be bad. We ought to be the most needy group of people in Lexington. We're actually about to all sing together, Lord, I need you. So we all know we all need each other. We all know we need God. Can we stop acting like we don't? How often we want to live our lives, as my friend and counselor tells me about my life, how often we want to live our lives like we're some sort of museum artifact behind a screen. We're complete. We're arrived. No one is as they should be. Do not wait to be as you ought to be to come to God. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Come now to God. In your weakness, in your hopelessness, and be met by a God who loves to meet people in their weakness and be sent out by him. Let me pray for us. Father, we do in need, need you so badly, Lord. We need your grace. We need your wisdom. We need your hope. Lord, if if we are to look around in this world, there is not much to give us hope. And so, Father, we need you this morning to meet us in our weakness, even when we're afraid to admit our weakness. Lord, we need you to help us admit it. Not just that we might admit it, but that we might boast in your strength and be dependent upon the one who has created us. Lord, help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.